Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 121, and we're going to talk about all those kind of creepy crawly things that start to emerge this time of year, and how to keep them off of you, and what doesn't work, most importantly. We're also going to talk about how to add a hitch to your van, a product review of those stick-on tiles that look like a great solution but might not be, and a place to visit that is very, very wet. Hello everyone, welcome back. Here we are once again, and spring has sprung, or is maybe starting to spring, or maybe you're in the northeast where you just had a major snowstorm. At any rate, it's that time of year where things are starting to change, and one of the first things that happens at this time of year is that the bugs wake up, and then the bugs come around and try to bug you. And, well, what can we do to stop this? I mean... You have seen this happen. You have gone to this perfect site. It's private. You've got your van set up and then this beautiful sunset. And then all of a sudden you hear and yeah, then your night's ruined. Well, there are things you can do and we're going to talk about those. But before we get into that, I just have a couple of notes to share. Uh, First off, thank you to everyone reaching out to me bemoaning my keychain. <laughs> I had a number of people write and say, holy cow, you have so many keys, I'm so sorry. I have good news. While I haven't reduced the number of keys I have, I have reconfigured my keychain in such a way that I no longer have to carry them all with me. So I am down to a more manageable size of keys, and hopefully that's a sign of a more manageable mental health state with all the stuff I'm working on right now. But maybe not! But anyway, thank you for that. Also, another note, a helpful person in the Discord channel pointed out that GasBuddy is having some troubles. Now, I've talked about GasBuddy a few times, and I do think it's a good resource for finding out where maybe the cheapest price of gas is around you, and I do think you should use the website for that, not the app, because there's not as much tracking. But now they've gotten in trouble somehow. ExxonMobil has denied GasBuddy from using their services. Now, Obviously, they can't deny the reporting of prices. That's just kind of something that's out there. But they can deny the use of the Gas Buddy card, and that appears to be what they've done. So, at this point, my bottom line on Gas Buddy is go ahead and use it to check prices, use it on the website so you don't even have to have an app, and don't bother with this Gas Buddy card thing. It's not worth it. There are other discount programs that are better, and if you have a credit card that gives you percent back on gas purchases, like an awful lot of them do, Well, heck, just use that and don't worry about it. And remember, your whole life does not revolve around gas prices. I live near a Costco. I see people waiting in line for 25 minutes to save three cents a gallon for their 10-gallon tanks. And I don't know about you, but I would rather not worry about that 30 cents. Okay, back to the bugs. So, holy cow, whenever you've got something with a whole bunch of solutions, it's a pretty good bet that a lot of them don't work. This seems to happen with all kinds of things. It's like, here, want an example? How about weight loss? How many thousands of solutions are there for weight loss, and how many of them actually work? I promise you the ones that work are the ones that require an awful lot of effort, because there's nothing easy about it, and it's similar with mosquitoes. There have been studies done. So, I mean, that's the thing. How do you know when you've got a whole bunch of solutions, how do you know which ones work? 
Well, you look at the science. You look at who's done double-blinded tests to come up with something that actually works. And these tests have been done a lot because mosquitoes are a huge, huge problem all around the world. They cause millions of deaths. They cause all kinds of other economic problems. And so, yeah, there are people spending a lot of time studying this. And they do have answers. They do. Now, some of you may not like these answers. These answers are based on studies that I have read and Consumer Reports articles and some personal experience, and they are all backed by some science. But that means that that flower that is being touted as being all natural and actually smells nice and is supposed to get rid of 99% of insects, it, it doesn't work. And I'm sorry, I, I wish it did. And maybe you have tried it and it worked for you, but I'm telling you that under a study... Under controlled observing conditions, it doesn't work. So, what does work? If we're just talking about insect repellent here, now we're talking about the stuff you rub on your skin. That's where we're going to start. The stuff that, uh, you know, deep woods off. Remember that? That stuff in the green can that smells really good, at least to me. I mean, it, it, to, to me, it just reminds me of all my years of summer camp as a kid. I love it. That stuff actually works. It does. Then you might say, oh, well, it has DEET in it, and, you know, DEET's a chemical that's bad. And like, Well, let's back up here. DEET is a chemical. It's true. So is lemon oil. So is water. The fact that it's a chemical is not a problem. Ah, but it's a chemical with a scary name. Eh, that just means you don't really understand it. I mean, none of these names are scary to chemists because they can look at the ingredients of an orange and see that they're just as complex and have just as many letters and numbers as the ingredients of the best insect repellent in the world. And no, oranges are not an insect repellent. DEET is one of three substances that has been shown to be very effective at repelling mosquitoes. Now, when we say repelling, we're not talking about you won't notice any mosquitoes. We're talking about they will land on you but won't bite you because they do not like it there. And that's a pretty good thing. So DEET actually works. It is not perfect. It does have problems. Now, a lot of people associate health issues with DEET. I can't find any reliable studies that associate health problems with the amount of DEET that you would put on yourself in a normal camping situation. It's safe for pregnant women. It seems to be safe for everyone. Now, obviously, I'm not a science professional here. You need to do your own research and talk to your doctors about this stuff. But based on what I've seen, DEET is safe if used properly. But that doesn't mean it's great. DEET does have problems. Some people don't like the smell, it leaves your skin kind of oily, and it dissolves plastic, which is actually a fairly large problem. I once brought a synthesizer keyboard, you know, like a Casio tone on a camping trip, and there were some kids there, and I let them play with it. And unbeknownst to me, those kids had just bathed in DEET. I mean, they were covered in it because their mother was worried and, you know, I get it. But when I got that keyboard back, their fingerprints were literally embedded in it. And for the entire time I owned that keyboard, I had those kids' fingerprints with me. <laughs> so, yep, DEET requires some care, but it is very effective. You do need to get the right percentage. Now, remember the company selling this stuff aren't actually trying to make it effective so much as they're trying to make it make money. So there's two tactics they do to get you to buy it 
that won't be as effective. And one is that they'll lower the concentration of DEET and add in a whole bunch of nice, pretty smelling things. And it'll say contains DEET. And you'll be like, that's the stuff I want. And it smells great. And it's like a lotion. And why not use that? But the percentage matters. If that has 5% DEET in it, it isn't going to do much. The other end of the spectrum are the people who are like, I want the tough stuff. I want, I want 100% DEET. No Skeeter's going to bite me. And I'll admit, I used to be one of these people. I used to have a bottle of 100% DEET that I would carry around. That was actually the original Deep Woods Off. Well, it's too much. It turns out that mosquitoes aren't dissuaded by 100% DEET. The number you're looking for is about 20 a little bit more, a little bit less is fine, but 20% DEET is the optimum percentage of DEET in whatever the carrier is that will keep mosquitoes from biting you. Okay, so I haven't convinced you that DEET is safe, whatever, you still don't like DEET. Okay, that's fine. You have other choices. The next one that is recommended is called Picaridin. That's P-I-C-A-R-I-D-I-N. Picaridin. This is a newer one. And it doesn't have all the same problems of DEET. It's not as oily. It doesn't have that DEET smell. But, it, you know, it, it's still not necessarily comfortable to put on your skin. It's a little bit oily. And it's a little bit less effective than DEET. But it is effective. It also is a little bit more expensive. So it kind of is only something you would use if you really didn't like DEET for some reason or you couldn't find any DEET. So that's called Picaridin. It doesn't come in as fancy bottles in my experience. It comes in bottles that look more medicinal for some reason. But uh, this stuff does actually work pretty well. And again, you're looking for about a 20% solution, somewhere in that range. It, it does not have to be perfect. But more than 30 is, is not going to do it, and less than 10 is not going to do it. Aim for 20. Okay, so I still haven't convinced you. You still want something natural with big quotes on it. A word that is undefined as far as marketing is concerned. Because, you know, everything comes from nature, even these really weird-sounding chemicals. Okay, so what about lemon eucalyptus oil? Well, lemon eucalyptus isn't a lemon, it's a eucalyptus. And there is an oil that comes from this tree that mosquitoes don't like. And yes, you can use this stuff. It is completely natural, which does not mean it is completely safe. It doesn't mean anything. It just means that it wasn't made through a synthetic process. A lot of things made by synthetic processes are actually better, so don't think that that's all that great. But it does work it does actually smell nice as opposed to the others, and you could use that too, but it has two drawbacks. One is that it's expensive, and the other is that it doesn't work as well. You have to reapply it much more often than the other stuff. So those are the three chemicals to look for to keep mosquitoes from biting you. I know that's controversial. I know some of you are like, he's crazy. I get it. I know. I'm sorry. But I can only tell you what I have learned over my 55 years on this planet and what I have experienced and read and studied. And that is the conclusion I have at this point in my life. Oh, wait. You say, yeah, but he didn't mention Skin So Soft. What about that? Oh, you know what? It turns out that Skin So Soft, which is an Avon product that people have been touting for years, does repel mosquitoes for about 60 seconds. Yeah, it, uh, it doesn't last very long, and uh, it, it just really isn't feasible for this. And it, you know what's funny is that Avon started making Skin So Soft insect repellent that has DEET in it. And you can put anything else in this category too. Any kind of thing you come up with, I don't care how many numbers and letters it has in its name or how friendly it sounds, 
Nothing else has been shown to work at this time. Okay, but what about just keeping them out of your area? You have a nice campsite set up. You want those mosquitoes out of there. Let's talk about some of the things people think works. You've got smoke. The smoke work. Mm, I mean, mosquitoes don't like to fly in smoke, but you also don't like to sit in smoke. So while the mosquitoes won't be in the smoke, you're not in the smoke either. They know how to fly around smoke. Your best chance with smoke is to actually have the CO2 in the smoke confuse them, and that might work to some extent but it's not that reliable. The same is true for those thermocell devices. I don't know if you've seen these things, but they look like lanterns. In fact, they actually call them lanterns. And you put a butane canister in them, and then they give off CO2 and a chemical that is derived from chrysanthemums, but it's still a chemical. Eh, they seem to work for a limited area, like a personal area. Like, they will protect one person, but they're a lot of money. They're like 30 bucks for the thing, and then you have to burn butane. So... You end up with this thing you have to keep using. They're hot. They can be somewhat dangerous. And honestly, I don't think it's worth it. So I don't recommend thermocells. If somebody wants to send me a thermocell, I promise I will do a very good test of it. But I really don't think they work from what I've seen. Okay, how about wind? How effective is wind? Well, good news, folks. Wind works. Mosquitoes can't fly above 7 miles per hour. So if you've got an 8 mile per hour night on a hot summer night, you've got that, that's just that nice breeze and it's going to be perfect for keeping the mosquitoes away. So why don't you just make your own breeze? <laughs> Bring a fan outside with you. If, you've par if you're sitting near your van, you've got power. Have a portable fan that you can just blow and that'll keep the skeeters off you. I mean, that really does work. They simply can't fly in that. It also messes up their carbon dioxide detection, which is again how they find you. They follow your trail of exhaled breath to you. Which leads us to a strategy for in your van, and this I have done and I know it works. Let's say you don't have any screens in your van, as I didn't in my NV200. But you're hot. I mean, it's summer, right? You want to you have some airflow, but you don't want to suck all the bugs in. Well, it turns out, like I mentioned earlier, that they are attracted carbon dioxide. If you have a max air fan in the roof or some other fan in the roof that's blowing out, all that carbon dioxide is going out through the roof, and there's a screen there. So for a mosquito to get in, it would have to detect the carbon dioxide, follow it down to the fan, somehow fly through the air of the fan, and then get through the screen and into your van. Now, you might get the lucky mosquito that comes through the crack in the door or the open window or whatever, but it's not going to be the crazy murder scene it would be if you didn't have that fan going. And that brings us to nets. For me, mosquitoes are annoying, but where they're really annoying is when I'm trying to sleep. And depending on your van build, you may not be able to screen the inside of your van effectively. But you can screen yourself. And I've talked about this before. You can buy a mosquito net. This is something I used to use all the time at Boy Scout camp. And it's a twin-size bed net that is usually green. Sometimes they're white that you basically crawl into and you sleep in. And the idea is you don't want the net to touch your skin, so you usually hang it up over your bed. It's big enough for your entire bed or cot to fit in, and you can sleep in there without any worry that any mosquitoes are going to get in. They simply can't get in there. And these things are fairly inexpensive. I'll have a link in the show notes. Ikea actually sells some curtains that are of a material that you could use to make these things as well. But if you're outside and it's a severe environment, I've seen a lot of people who hike the Appalachian Trail use head nets. 
and that's something that can really help. Just like if you were a beekeeper, only these are a little bit easier to see out of, you can get these nets that will fit over a hat, and they will keep the skeeters off your face, and then you actually will wear long sleeves or whatever on the rest of your body. So that's an option too. Now before we leave this topic, I want to talk about one more thing, and that is ticks. Generally, the repellents that work on mosquitoes will also work on ticks, so that's good. And ticks are dangerous. As somebody who has had Lyme disease, ticks are a worry. And unlike mosquitoes, they don't make any noise. Usually, people will feel ticks if they're crawling up your hairs on your leg. And as a male who does not shave his legs, sorry ladies, I can tell you that I have felt ticks crawling up there. But if you're somebody who shaves your leg hair for whatever reason, or you just don't have a lot of hair, you may not notice. And these things are, they're tiny in some cases. I mean, a normal quote-unquote dog tick, which is a lot more common than the deer ticks, yeah, they're maybe the size of a piece of confetti or something like that. I mean, they're, they're pretty small. But the deer ticks are the size of a period on a printed page. And that's what got me. I never saw the tick. I was out fishing in the brush and somehow one of these ticks got on me and bit me and transferred this bacteria into me and I caught Lyme disease and I was sick for a month. It was no fun at all. So what do you do about this? Well, like I said, you can use the repellents, but the other thing that's really important with ticks is to do a body check. If you have, if you're with two people, this is not the time to be shy. Start going through those folds of skin, look under your armpit, prick up your leg, every, all that stuff. Look and make sure there aren't any ticks there. If you're by yourself, you've got to do the best you can and hope for the best. And if you have any symptoms at all, especially the quote-unquote bullseye rash, absolutely get tested and make sure that the test they do is called a Western blot test. Now, if you find a tick on yourself, you have to remove it in a certain way. There's all kinds of, oh, you burn it, you cover it in Vaseline, all that. Nah, I mean, you really don't want to do that. What you want to focus on is getting the head out of your body. And one of the best ways to do that is with something called a tick key, which is this usually aluminum device that you put over the tick and pull back on, and it will pop the tick right off. I'll have a link in the show notes for that, too, so you know what it looks like. That's the best way, but failing that, try to scrape it off or very carefully use tweezers only on the head region and make sure you get it all out. Do not squeeze the body. If you squeeze the body, everything that's in the body is going to be injected into you, and that's bad. So folks, that's probably more than you ever wanted to know about this stuff, but uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that can ruin your trip. I desperately don't want that to happen. So open to anything you have to say. If you have any comments about what I've said about this, you can always reach me at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Tech Talk. Cat Talk. So you want to tow something. Okay, you're going to need a hitch. Now, a lot of vans, especially commercial vans, will have hitches already installed on them. A lot of them will have what's called a bumper hitch, which is a basically a hole in the back of the bumper. And we're talking about like old E350s and Savannas and stuff like that, that you can just put a hitch on. That's great. But you're still going to need wiring and it can still be complicated. So how do you do all this? I've done this a few times now. I've put hitches on a bunch of vehicles. I've installed the wiring. I have a pretty good handle of how all this works. So what you want to do 
is make sure you get the right hitch for your vehicle. You want to look at eTrailer.com. You want to look at U-Haul, which has a great database of what fits what vehicle. Make sure you get the right hitch. Now, you don't have to install it yourself. U-Haul will install the hitch for you, so you have that option. And they're not that expensive because U-Haul wants you to rent their stuff, so they want you to have a hitch. So U-Haul is a good resource for all hitch-related stuff. But let's say you have, well, I'll talk about vehicles I own, right? So I had an NV200. That is a vehicle that in the U.S. is not rated to tow. But you can still put a hitch on there. Now, why would you want to put a hitch on a vehicle that isn't allowed to tow? Well, hitches are good for a bunch of things. You can put a step on them. You can put a bike rack on them. I mean, you can put all kinds of racks on them. Some people even put toilet seats on them, though I don't really understand why. Also, yeah, you can tow light things with them. I towed a very, very light trailer with my NV200 and had no problems. So what's involved once you buy one of these things, and honestly, I've gotten mine from Amazon. Well, the Kurt and draw-type hitches now are designed to be bolt-on. You generally just bolt them on, but it's specific to each vehicle, and there's always a little something you have to do. For the NV200, I had to cut out a piece of the underneath of the bumper molding in order to have a part of the hitch fit, and then putting in some of the bolts required fishing a wire through existing holes or drilling new holes. Now, that was for the NV200. I got it done. It was a lot of work, eh, but... If you are moderately handy, like let's say you're the kind of person that's going to build out a van, yeah, you can handle a hitch. On the Sprinter, I just put a hitch, and it was actually easier, but it did require drilling out a fairly substantial hole. But honestly, if you knew what you were doing, you could easily install the hitch on a Sprinter, at least an NCV3 Sprinter like mine, in about half an hour. It took me about an hour as I figured stuff out. It's also much easier if you have two people, because you have to crawl under there and lift the hitch up and screw it in at the same time. That's a little tricky. This is the part that'll get you. It's only half the problem. You've got the hitch installed. You also have to worry about the lights, because whatever you tow... You're going to need some lights on. What I recommend you install is the wiring that has four wires and it's flat because this is what U-Haul uses. It's the most common way to do it. There are some European ones that have seven wires and there's some five wire ones that are for motorcycles. That stuff works, but you're going to need adapters if you use U-Haul equipment or most of your own equipment. The tricky thing is that now a lot of vehicles have LED lights on the trailer or in the truck or van and that makes this a little tricky so they require a converter box and that costs money you might spend 50 60 70 bucks for a wiring kit for your vehicle but the good news is is that most of them now are just plug and play for the most part in my nv200 and in my sprinter it was the same i just had to unplug the harness that goes into the taillight and then plug them into this controller box on both sides and then I had to run a ground wire and then a wire to the battery. Of course, you can use any 12-volt source. Just make sure it has power the entire time the vehicle's running. And there's a fuse and all that. So it's not too bad. You don't have to figure out, oh, this is the right turn wire. That goes to the brown wire. No, now all those days are over. You, if you have a vehicle that doesn't have LED lights, you can try to do that on your own. But honestly, it's worth the money just to get the kit. So, yes, you can install a hitch on your vehicle. I'm confident you can do it. I did it. And while I did drop the bumper on my face and break my glasses, and now I have a big scar on my forehead, that's just me. You're not going to be that clumsy, are you? Product Review 
So let's talk about those stick-on tiles. They look like such a great solution, right? So you're like, I kind of want it to look like tile, but I don't want to like do all that glue and concrete and cement, and then they might crack. So what if I cut those like rubber tiles that look like tiles, but, but really aren't? You just stick them on. All right. So these can be a good solution. I have used them with great success and with horrible nightmares. So I thought I'd share that experience with you. I'm not going to recommend a brand or anything like that. That's not the point. The point is, are these things a good idea and what should you look for? So they can be a good idea. They're nice because you can cut them with scissors, right? So if you have to cope around something or if you have some, <laughs> imagine this, you're in a van and you have an angle that isn't a right angle. Oh, when does that ever happen? Yeah, if you run into one of those situations, these will definitely be a solution for that. But not all styles work the same. I have some of the big subway tiles type. Those are just basic big white tiles with very little gap in between them. Those work great. I mean, really, you just have to be able to measure straight and then cut properly, and you can stick them up just about anywhere. And the adhesive is super, super strong on these things. I haven't had any problem with the adhesives, except when I tried to put the kind of tiles that looked like stainless steel tiles in my NV200. This was originally going to be like the backsplash behind my sink, and I put these up, and there's a big gap between each of the tiles. And I thought, well, it doesn't matter because the, the thing is all attached. I'll just put it, yeah, no. It's all very flexible, and those tiles moved around all over the place, and trying to keep them looking straight was impossible. And then when I decided to take them off, oh, they do not want to come off. It left all this nasty residue. I mean, it was a mess. I ended up covering it all with bamboo planking, which turned out really nice as it happened, but eek, it was a mess. And I hope nobody ever takes off that bamboo planking and sees what's under there. So advice if you're going to use the sticky tiles is... Make sure you get a style you want. In fact, before you install them, tack them up on the wall with a bunch of masking tape or whatever just to see if you like the look because this is going to be pretty much permanent. And make sure you pick one that has very, very thin lines between the tiles. You don't want any space in there that can move around. And I would argue the bigger the tile, the better. Now, that's a design choice, and I get that. But the bigger tiles, I think, are going to hold up better when you put them up on the wall. Anyway, have fun, and yeah, if you end up not liking it, you can always cover it with something else. A place to visit. Okay, this is a little bit of an unusual place, especially in a van, but gosh darn it, I think you should visit the Bermuda Triangle. Ah, <laughs> yeah, okay, so the Bermuda Triangle is supposedly this region of the sea between Miami, Fort Lauderdale area of Florida, Bermuda... And Puerto Rico, generally. Some will say San Juan. You will find that if you look into the Bermuda Triangle that the measurements of it change quite a bit. Like the Mary Celeste, famous lost ship, was supposed to have its crew disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. But if you look at the story, it actually disappeared off the Azores, which is nowhere near there. So what's the story, right? The Bermuda Triangle, I'm telling you to go to some place where things just disappear. Well, yeah, they do, actually. Things do just disappear in the Bermuda Triangle. It's the ocean. It's in a hurricane-prone and a thunderstorm-prone part of the ocean with lots of little islands and reefs and ships disappear there. It's true, and yet they don't disappear there with any more frequency than anywhere else in the ocean. And you know how you can prove that? Lloyd's of London, who is the famous insurance company for most big ships, 
doesn't charge ships anymore to go into the Bermuda Triangle or anywhere else. Because on average, the number of ships that pass through the area is proportionate to the number of incidents they experience. It matches everywhere else. The Bermuda Triangle is a made-up thing entirely. A gentleman by the name of Berlitz wrote a book in the 70s, and he just made all this stuff up. I mean, the stories are real. The Mary Celeste actually did happen, and the Cyclops did disappear. I mean, you know, these ships have disappeared, but that's just because they were in the water. Eventually, a lot of ships that sail are going to sink, especially way back in the day before modern navigation. So what's in the Bermuda Triangle? Why should you want to go there? Well, you may have already been there. If you've taken a cruise out of southern Florida, you have gone through the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, any cruise leaving out of Miami or Fort Lauderdale or Port Canaveral, uh, which is Orlando area, they all go through the Bermuda Triangle. And you know how many cruise ships have disappeared there? I don't think any. I'm trying to think. Have any? Um, none have disappeared. I mean, there have been a couple of incidents. I'm trying to think of any specifically. I think there was a fire on a very, very small cruise ship 30 years ago. Yeah, it was like one of those day ships that had a fire there. But that's it. That's it. Cruise ships are not generally disappearing from the Bermuda Triangle, so nor are airplanes. Lots of single-passenger airplanes down there, and they do crash sometimes, but it's, again, it's no greater than anywhere else. So the Bermuda Triangle is home to all of the private islands that all the cruise lines have. It's home to the Bahamas. It's home to Puerto Rico. It's home to southern Florida. There's a lot of really cool stuff there, and, you know, go there. Go there if that's the kind of stuff that interests you. Go sailing. Drive your van down the Keys, because, heck, you might be in the Bermuda Triangle down there. Who knows where these lines are? But seriously, folks, there are a lot of made-up things in the world. The Bermuda Triangle is one of them, and while it can be fun to research and all this stuff, imagine aliens and things, well, you can kind of do that anywhere. So this isn't any different. Well, I've talked so long about bugs that I'm not doing Tales from the Road or resource recommendation this time. I will get back to them next week. But most important thing for me to say is thank you very, very much for listening. I do absolutely appreciate it. We do have a bit of a community here. We're on Facebook at built to go a Facebook group. And we have a Discord channel that is shockingly called built to go a Discord channel. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. Instead of a quote this time, I'm going to leave you with a little bit of trivia. I met my wife in the Bermuda Triangle, okay? So, heck. And that is absolutely one of the best things that's ever happened to me.